Into the Wilderness podcast, and uh, for well, we've got a podcast room now, and this is actually probably the only third time or fourth time we've used it. And I'm recording here, and Byron is recording in Africa, and hopefully, seamlessly, our audio. Yeah, I, I'm not in the podcast room. Yeah, he is not in the podcast room, and hopefully, seamlessly, our audio will sound like we're in the same room. That's the plan. Yeah, except except for the fact that the room that I'm sitting in, there's lots of farm noise because I'm sitting in the farm office at Mount Techo Safaris in Namibia and every now and then a lorry comes past and drops something off and people are in and out so uh, it maybe won't be quite as quiet as yours. I'm sure you can be forgiven for uh, for, for that since since we are recording literally thousands of miles away. If I was recording where I wanted to record today but the internet was a bit crappy there uh, you might have been able to hear hippos in the background. <laughs> That's uh, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, actually, that does bring us on nicely. Now, like we said, there's going to be improvements going on the podcast, and we're going to be running new things. And as uh, a new feature in the show, we're going to be doing Guess the Animal. So uh, that kind of brings us nicely, I guess, into the, the competitions before we get into what's happening in the show and what's been going on. It's not going to be a hippo. It's though. not going to be a hippo, no. So would you like to tell the... The good people about the the competition and uh, maybe the winner of the previous competition. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to, in conjunction with Modern Huntsman, who support this podcast now, uh, we are giving away a copy of Volume Three with every single episode of the podcast. And two weeks ago, we ran the same competition, and all we asked was for people to subscribe to our website, thepagebrothers.com, and we would pick a winner at random. And unfortunately, my phone has just lost the person that I'd picked, so I need to try and find them again. By the way, the modern huntsmen have I been flying out, and I have been, been tagged in so many posts online of people getting them in the UK. So if you have ordered a modern huntsman from the UK... Uh, then expect yours very, very soon. And if you are out with the UK and you've ordered as well, um, expect yours very soon as well. Hopefully it should be there. Uh, We've had orders literally around the entire globe, New Zealand, Australia, Italy, uh, Norway. uh, The list just goes on and on. Uh, So those people that are just slightly further away, um, typically I would say if you did order initially when the first batch was sent out for australia i'd probably say two weeks yeah but now they've been landing all around the world uh and i have the winner so this uh was for the modern huntsman that we were giving away two weeks ago and the winner is ollie lambert so congratulations ollie you are about to be the proud owner of a brand new copy of Modern Huntsman, Volume 3, we will get that out to you as soon as you... Oh, actually, we already have... Oh, no, we don't. I will send you an email, uh, and then we will get your address and get that posted out to you. Uh, And for this show, as we just said, you're going to have a chance to win another copy of Volume 3. Daryl is going to play um, an animal sound, and all you're going to have to do is contact us 
and tell us what animal that is, and all the correct answers will go um, into a bucket, and we will randomly pick the winner. Yeah, easy as that. But this is going to be a feature ongoing. Uh, guess the animal sound. There might, there probably won't be a competition with it every single time, but just for a little bit of fun, we're going to just do guess the animal sound on every single one. And these animals will be from anywhere around the globe, literally. And they're going to be there's going to be some hard ones. So uh, good good luck with that. So I'm going to play the animal sound now. And now that you've listened to it, all you need to do is, with your guess, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Or if you are Instagram or Facebook, then just sling us a message on there as well. I'm sure we'll get up uh, it on the Instagram stories as well, uh, so that you can uh, just mess- yeah, message us on there. Has everyone been enjoying the little snippets that we've been giving you on the Instagram stories? And if you don't know what we're talking about, what we're trying to do with every show is give little insights as to what the show is about by putting recordings on our Instagram story, um, just to give a flavor of what the interview is that we've just done and who's been on. Well, I've, um, I think a lot of people have been watching them. We've had a few have comments, so, so tell us I've what you think. I've put some up today, and there's been quite a few people uh, saying, well, particularly the Leveson Wood one, which was two weeks ago. That it was one of the best podcasts we've ever done. Ah, oh, well, there you we, go. I'll th- take that. There's been, take there's that been a number of um, comments uh, and emails from people saying that they really love the Levison Wood one and like it was one of the best ones we've done. Uh, and I mean, that's actually down to everyone that supports us because we wouldn't have been able to do that podcast because we had to fly to London to go and record it. Um, if it wasn't for the people that supported the show. Uh, so that includes Mon Huntsman as well as uh, a big list of people that is getting bigger by the day uh, that are supporting us on Patreon. Uh, and we do, in fact, have a, an incredible amount of uh, conservation. Well, it's the Hall of Fame, isn't it, Byron? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the top the tier. The top tier on Patreon. Uh, and you've got the... So um, if you if you don't know about it yet, just go and uh, look up the Pace Brothers or just Google the Pace Brothers Patreon and it's the first thing that pops up and you'll be able to see the sort of the different tiering system for how you can support the podcast. Um, there's uh, everything from, I think, less than $5 to 25 and above and you get different things for every tier. And in the very top tier, um, along with hats and T-shirts and signed prints, uh, you get your name shouted out on the podcast, which... Daryl's going to do now just to say thank you to everyone. Well, thank you to everyone who supports, but a big thank you to our top tier supporters it, who are. Well, I was just going to say it's been insane in the in the space of the last two days. We've had another three top tier supporters, and we've actually we've been absolutely blown away. Uh, we never expected people to support the show in such a generous way. And this goes all the way to people that are giving $1, $2, all the way up to the top tier, which is $25. Uh, we have to work in dollars because uh, it's an American site. Uh, but it it really does mean that we can do shows like we just brought you two weeks ago where we had to spend you know £200 on uh, a flight to go to London, record the show, and it means that we can do these things. And the ultimate goal, which I cannot believe we're actually achieving very, very quickly, is to have basically 40 people kind of supporting the show, and then we can bring one out a week. Uh, so, And I can't believe we're actually a- approaching that fa- Halfway way, <laughs> way faster than I thought we would. Uh, so it's it's incredible. 
But so these uh, these people that are in the Hall of Fame are, in fact, Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McGrath, South Ayrshire Stalking, Richard Barker, James Marchington, and we have two new people, Connor Brown and Thomas Cameron. So, and... What, they're both from across, way across the world, from uh, Australia and New Zealand. So thank you, thank you guys. Um, in fact, I'm going to read you something from uh, Thomas uh, Cameron. He sent us an awesome message on Patreon. I'm just going to read the the, fir- the first part of it, and this is how awesome the community is. I'm honestly so excited to be able to support such an amazing podcast and company. I've only been listening for the last month or so, and I'm truly loving every conversation. I'm quite new to the hunting community, and it has been such an awesome journey so far, learning about how we can have an impact on conservation and becoming stewards of this beautiful land we live um, live and explore. Thank you for helping me get there and understanding uh, this beautiful and complicated thing we are all so passionate about. Now, that is an awesome message. Thank you very much, Thomas, and thank you for supporting us. I was actually looking at the the, the stats bar of our geographical, of the, the podcast, and I tell you what, we, you know, the, the UK is you know, steadily going up, but fast, and I mean on the heels, is our US listeners um, every month. So we are... The U.S. listeners... Howdy to all the U.S. listeners. All the U.S. listeners are a way to overtake all of our U.K. listeners in terms of people listening. And then uh, clo- closely followed by Australia and New Zealand. You are all welcome. Yeah, welcome. And we've got more We've got more listeners in Japan. Fantastic. More, more, and uh, I was looking, we've got uh, quite a few more listeners across Africa as well. It's, it's actually crazy um, where some of our listeners are from. We, we've, I think we've almost touched every country now around the globe. The only one we've not gotten to is North Korea, but I think that one can be forgiven. It's <laughs> a true global listenership. And the next thing we have up, uh, I think we'll probably have one or two more things to say um, after this, but um, you're about to get a little mini intro from Lindsay Elliott, um, just like we did two weeks ago when we had Tyler Sharp speaking uh, in the intro of our podcast to tell you all about Volume 3 Modern Huntsman, um, we've got one of the contributors, Lindsay Elliott, who I hadn't spoken to before, uh, and <laughs> I say this uh, in the interview with her, but I'm really looking forward to getting back out to the States, and she's top of my list to sit down and do a full podcast with. Uh, so you're about to hear from Lindsay Elliott. She gives you a, a brief rundown um, as to her co- uh, contributions to Modern Huntsman Volume 2. Uh, which has been out, and um, I think probably a lot of you have or have seen, and what you can look forward to in Volume 3 from her. And then followed straight into a podcast with uh, Johnny from Sandgrouse Travel, who we've talked about before, and uh, I have not actually listened to this full podcast yet, so I will do later on. Uh, But I believe you cover uh, quite a few different things, including our trip that we did to Svalbard Barn. Yeah, so our regular listeners who have listened uh, for a while will know that we were in um, Svalbard two years ago, a year and a half ago, I think we worked out that it was, and um, we talk about that with Johnny in this, and you get to hear a little bit about his background, um, how his thirst for adventure started, and uh, a few things that he's working on in his travel company. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So... Scottish Game Fair has just gone, and uh, it's been and gone. It's another year gone. Uh, unfortunately, was it good though? It was. It was 
it felt busier than it has been for the last few years. Uh, but I don't know if that was for once I wasn't working, so I was actually just walking around, uh, which mm. is pretty cool. And uh, I spent a lot of money, as you do. Uh, I bought I bought myself a chair. What kind of a chair? Uh, kind of like a, not a Chesterfield. Like a the only way I can describe it would be like a mini Chesterfield. So like. Yeah, I think I can picture so, this. Did it have wooden? Yes, yeah. So like wooden legs, and then it had. So it's leather, like so it's a tweed seat. Then it's got a leather back and leather arms, and then it's got those like metal studs in it. Incidentally, I bought it, and uh, I didn't realize at the time that it was exactly the same um, tweed as the chair I already have. So that's that's a bonus. Oh, almost like you yeah. planned it. I I hear you have children in the background, Byron. Uh, only briefly. <laughs> I'm waving goodbye. They were in and out. Yeah, it's Alex's little daughter, uh-huh. whose birthday party I was at the other day. It was it was wild. One year old birthday party. That's what where it's does at. a one year old birthday party look like? Um, eating a lot of cake. I like cake. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was basically okay. it. Um, and then we we bride as oh, well. Oh, very nice. So, yeah, meat and cake. I mean, basically, what adults like is just that you'd add alcohol. <laughs> So I've been at the Scottish Game Fair this weekend, uh, which I, I loved it. The weather could not have been any better. I think it was about 18 degrees, slightly overcast, so people didn't get too fried. And uh, from what I could see, everyone was enjoying themselves. What What have you been up to the last week or two? Well, um, yeah, it's um, I'm out here in Namibia just now. Um, I think we'll probably... I won't give too much of a, a full rundown. We can maybe do it when we don't have like an, an intro from someone else in in the start. Otherwise, our intro will yeah. be massively long. Um, but just gathering uh, the beginnings of the story uh, for this new project, which we are involved in uh, relocating elephants from Namibia to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so that the date for us moving out, as with most things in Africa, keeps getting pushed out like a day and then another day and then another day because we're waiting for a boat to come back from from the Congo back to Namibia for these elephants to be um, put on the boat before they can be taken back up again. Um, but it has sailed now, so it is on its way. Um, so things are really starting to happen. I have been uh, most of the time, apart from the first couple of days, seeing grandparents and relatives in South Africa. I've been uh, here in Namibia at Mount Etcho Safari. Uh, where the elephants are being relocated from. It's the same place I was at two months ago. Um, And in fact, the podcast that you are going to hear in two weeks' time from when this goes out is with Alex, who um, is this is his place that, that we're in um, that he runs along with his wife and uh, and his mom so you'll get a you'll get a really good insight as to the place that i'm i'm in in two weeks when you hear the podcast that alex and i did and we actually recorded that two months ago but because we've had so many podcasts in the bank we're only just getting to putting it out now yeah well maybe uh, i imagine there'll be some more podcasts coming from that part of the world over the next uh, few months yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm going to try and do, I'm going to try and do some uh, one or two in the DRC themselves uh, with the vet and and the people involved in this project, and maybe even you know some of the government officials up there. Uh, and then I've been frantically pulling contacts together from different places uh, in different countries that I know that I'm going to be in to try and arrange some some you know good interviews and podcasts with people, and that's all starting to come together now. So there'll be lots of African conservation as well as, I think, um, some more stuff on elephant hunting 
topic, which is nothing really to do with this project that we're involved in uh, now in terms of documenting. But I think that'll come up as, as an interview with some people who really know what's going on in the ground in Botswana. So that should be interesting. It sounds like we've got an exciting few months of uh, shows ahead of us. We do. And you know what? I was looking the other day because I've got all the podcasts that are in the bank with me here is I think we still have like five. And there's a couple from the States that haven't even gone out. We've got one, an amazing one with Jack Evans, uh, which is quite a long podcast. And Jack is also a contributor of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, uh, where he writes about uh, grizzly bear delisting. This interview with him, which will be in the next two months, I guess, uh, when we put it out, is more, much more about his background. So if you've read the article, this will tell you a bit more about him, which will be cool. And we also have one with uh, Brad Christian, which I'd completely forgotten about from Sitka. That's, that's, that was like right at the end where our minds were fried by the end of the trip from the States. Yeah. And I also managed to, um, literally the day after I landed in South Africa, I caught up with um, Dr. Ray Jansen, who is the director of the African Pangolin Working Group, who a lot of you good people who listen to this podcast contributed um, to the auction to raise money for that group where we took um, thermal and motion cameras out to them. Um, So I do a a really great interview with him. I mean, what a fantastic guy. Really, really interesting and fascinating to hear his take. Firstly, following on from the Pangolin conversation that we had with um, Francois, which was really well received um, from people who listened to it. Uh, but we go from that and we talk about just general um, conservation globally and in Africa, the rhino horn trade, the opening of um, elephant hunting in Botswana, even bird hunting and how bird hunting in South Africa is saving and conserving areas. So I'm really looking forward to bringing that to everybody. That sounds awesome. Um, but I think that's it for me, I think. Okay, Darryl. well, we will, uh, I guess, jump straight into the the short intro with uh, Lindsay Elliott and then... With Lindsay? And then we'll we'll head into the show with uh, Johnny. Enjoy the show. Lindsay, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you for taking the time out today um, to be part of our intro as part of our partnership with Modern Huntsman. Volume 3, I believe, has is in someone's hand. I saw Charles post today and he had Volume 3 in his hand. And I believe that in the next two weeks, uh, they'll be being shipped out of uh, the UK. In fact, by the time this podcast goes out, they should be in the hands of people in the UK. Uh, but you came into the Modern Huntsman family in Volume 2, I believe. How did you first connect with, with Tyler and the guys there? Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm equally awaiting the postman to see when Volume 3 is going to pop into my mailbox, so I can't wait to see it this <laughs> week. Um, I first uh, got introduced to Tyler and Brad not too long after their Kickstarter um, for an article in Volume 2, and at the time I was working on a citizen science project here in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, which I'm actually still a part of, um, but they picked up the story um, for the contribution that citizen science is making in public lands management, because that issue was all about public lands. Um, So it was really cool. And actually, to date, it's the most successful citizen science project on record. And we're officially in year two of the research. But uh, the article that I was fortunate enough to be able to write for volume two was all about how human development and interaction is affecting wildlife, because we actually have the largest wildlife urban interface um, in the U.S. here along the Wasatch Front in Salt Lake City, and more people visit the National Forest uh, 
connected to Salt Lake than all five of the national parks combined in Utah. So incredible. We see a massive amount of visitation. And what, what we're trying to figure out right now is how to plan for population growth and development in a way that puts the least amount of stress and pressure on wildlife. So the project itself is uh, made up of, let's see, 200 different camera locations. And there's a team of volunteers and we go out um, basically all summer long and monitor and move these motion censored cameras that capture wildlife in their particular corridors. And what we're trying to do over the course of a five-year period of time is find the places of the most highly dense uh, species, find all of those zones, and then be able to go to the Utah Department of Transportation and the different development groups in the area and say, okay, you know, let's develop here and not here for this reason, or let's have trails here and not here for this reason. And what I love so much about the project is that you know, oftentimes uh, hunters and anglers get, we get kind of um, cornered for being the takers in our ecosystems in the recreation community because, you know, so- sometimes our actions actually remove a species from the ecosystem, um, even though 99% of the time hunters are just hikers. <laughs> um, but what yeah. I love so much about this project is that it's actually quantifying the impact that runners and bikers and skiers and really every recreationalist has on our ecosystems. And I love thinking about, you know, how we can sort of reframe um, recreation impact in the ecosystem with studies like this. Incredible. Uh, and from that, moving to and I, I said to my brother today, we were just <laughs> recording the intro to the podcast that's going out tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, and I was saying that we'd already have a, had a conversation which we had to end up re-recording. Uh, hence why we're doing this now. That I was fascinated by what you're saying, and we need to do an entire podcast with you on these various subjects: the citizen science stuff, plus the stuff you're about to tell us about in, in volume three when we're over in the States. So that is coming. So people listening to this can expect an entire podcast with you at some point in the near future, I hope. Uh, but moving on to, to volume three, which is what's out now, what can people expect to find in there from you? So this is a super exciting article that I have, I, I think, you know, in terms of how long I've been studying this topic, it's probably about eight years and about half of that time I've been a hunter. Um, but it's all about land management in Northern California, where I used to live, particularly around wild pigs, which are an incredibly hot topic in ecosystem management all over the country. And this article um, focuses on really the hunter and land manager's perspective in that specific ecosystem, because management means different things for pigs, depending on which climate you're in. But what's so fascinating about pigs is that we kind of they're sort of villainized, you know, like we we love to hate them and they're not in anybody's hunting category particularly. Um, and so I was super grateful to Tyler for picking up this story because it's a bit odd and it doesn't really fall into a, a topic that most people want to acknowledge or dive into. Um, but a group of us in January, we went out on a hunt really over New Year's and it was a really unique group of people. There were foresters and uh, hunters and restoration grazers and all sorts of people. And we were 
going through the landscape, looking at um, what is typically viewed as degradation by these pigs and thinking about the historical management of that particular ecosystem by the Pomo Indians for the last 15,000 years. And we're looking at, you know, which species are no longer there, like grizzly, grizzly bears and elk and, and seeing how these pigs have a presence in the ecosystem that might not be totally deleterious like we are typically taught to think about them. So the article itself explores kind of the the history of land management in California um, from the traditional perspective of the native peoples that lived there and sort of the modern conundrum of land management and how these pigs might actually be providing ecosystem services that we have overlooked. Well, I think that that's going to make, well, in fact, I know because I've already seen the article, it makes for an absolutely fascinating read. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what the, the feedback's going to be for volume three for your contribution and everyone else's, because I know that there's some incredible articles in there with some amazingly stunning uh, imagery as well. So thank you very much for coming on to give us that little snippet. I, I, I genuinely want to hear more, but I don't want to spoil the article <laughs> for everyone else who is going to be picking up volume three in the next in the next couple of days and digesting it for themselves uh but yeah Lindsay, thank you once again and i look forward to having some time with you in the states when we're over next to really dive deep into some of these topics and do a long-form podcast that sounds wonderful and i'm gonna go check my mailbox right now (laughs) now you've heard from Lindsay elliott let's jump straight into the main podcast with johnny johnny welcome to the into the wilderness podcast I can't believe that it has taken this long for us to sit down and have a chat and record it on the show because we spent quite a bit of time together over the last two years in some pretty awesome locations. And we're currently sitting, we've just had a meeting about something um, down in Sterling and we're sitting in your Land Rover. We are indeed. We're sitting in the in the beast. We are. So yeah. people are going to have to excuse like, I don't know, there's like jackdaws and crows and seagulls flying outside, probably the odd car driving past. Uh, but this is where we're recording the podcast. And I, I think it's a pretty fine setting, think, the most it, ultimate vehicle yeah, in the world. I think it's pretty fitting for, uh, you know, for our interests and, and what we've done together as well. So absolutely. Um, yeah, no, beautiful day where we are today. And it's, um, you told me that you had thunder and lightning last night, but I'm not sure I believe you because we saw nothing. Either that or I was just sleeping. Yeah, I think you must have been sleeping because it was a fairly big storm where we were. It was um, reminiscent of Africa. It was beautiful. Um, yeah, no, actually the storm uh, storm sort of played havoc with our uh, ponies. So they don't like the thunder and lightning really? at all, yeah. So what, um, what was the what was the effect this morning when you went to see them? Uh, well, the, the, the Highland pony is usually a little bit more um, jumpy after a storm. Um, last year, I think he witnessed his first storm and we couldn't go near him for about a day afterwards. He was really quite twitchy. Um, but no, he wasn't too bad this morning at all. I didn't think we were going to get into uh, into ponies, but tell me a little <laughs> bit about ponies. them because you've <laughs> you've uh, you've you've had them out on the hill recently. And what's we your have, plan yeah. with them? Well, yeah, well, because it's a hobby, right? Absolutely, it's a hobby. It? It's not it's not anything to do with what we do uh, on a work work point of view. But um, you know, we, we've had two Shetland ponies for 
almost 15 years and obviously they live up to about 30 years old so there's a wee way to go with those guys but um, the Shetlands we they're just you know as I say a hobby um, we've got a little carriage which we ride the Shetlands with or, or drive the Shetlands with um, which is great fun but we've we've actually recently got a Highland pony um, and the, the, the so also, this would be this is a, like a hill pony yeah absolutely so native breed um, traditionally used to take the stags off the hill here in Scotland or just on the croft and they were used during the war quite a lot absolutely yeah love it scouts I think in the first world war certainly used um, stacks of Highland ponies and um, yeah and in fact probably had something to do with the, the, the decrease in numbers funny enough I was with uh, I was doing some photography for Rigby at Glen Prosen State and the ghillie there who's not a permanent ghillie he does it as a hobby as well he just loves Highland ponies and working them as they, as they have historically been worked and he is really big into the bloodlines of it. Oh, fantastic. And he was explaining to me that the the pool, the genetic pool, shrunk so much yeah. after the war yeah. uh, that it was a real struggle to try and build that back again. Absolutely. And in terms of diversity, because so, so many died. Oh, totally. And it's only thanks to a handful of um, you know old school, traditional sporting estates in Scotland, such as Balmoral. Um, and, and and you know probably places like Blair Athol yeah. and so on that the bloodlines have, have you know managed to survive and um, yeah um, we're probably now up to I think I might be wrong but I think there's about five thousand um, Highland ponies um, in Scotland um, so it's not a great deal it's um, if no if people haven't seen a Scottish hill pony working like in their natural environment doing what they've done for hundreds of years it is the most incredible magical experience it's totally magical and and the other interesting factor is um you know it's almost as, as if they have well they, they must do but they must have some, some kind of dna memory because our our three-year-old um gelding we've um you know he, he spent most of his life as a, down down in the straths in a paddock mm. but you know we've taken him out recently up into the mountains properly and he's just you know like a duck to water he's going through bogs he's negotiating burns no problem at all and um you know he's uh they're, they're they're known for their sort of calm, um, methodical approach to facing a problem, and they're they're quite bulletproof, really. And um, you know, all sorts of things from that would that would normally you know intimidate or frighten a, a horse or a pony. They take in their stride. They're a fantastic breed and very low maintenance for us as well up here in Scotland. It's it's bitterly cold in the winter, as you can imagine, as you know. And um, you know, there's no need to put rugs on them or anything like that. They just become like woolly mammoths and. Take everything in their stride. Yeah, they're, they're pretty hardy, aren't they? Very hardy and just a lovely temperament. They're, they're known. They're what's called kind-eyed. And um, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it just, you know, as it sounds, they they just look sweet and kind and, yeah. and are very friendly and 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 naturally. It's true. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> the only time they might, uh, yeah, they do get. They might give you a nip from time to time. Yeah, a wee nibble. Yeah, or a wee yeah. kick. Yeah, if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I thought we were going to start talking about um, travel around the world and your history. We were talking about hill ponies, but I think it's it's fascinating. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you, you actually asked our, our actual plan with our Highland ponies yeah. to train him up to carry grouse panniers. Oh, of course, um, you mentioned this to me. Yes, yeah. and um, obviously that's a sort of very traditional um, task and job for a role for the for the Highland ponies. But our vision is to. Um, you know, not necessarily just put grouse in the panniers. It would be to laden them up with a decent picnic and a you know, bottle of champagne and go up to the hills and and do that with um, with our clients who are visiting Scotland. So. That sounds like a mighty fine idea. You take the food onto the hill and 
once you've eaten and consumed it, you take the grouse back down. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds so, perfect yeah, to me. Yeah. And um, no, that's the ultimate plan. But you know, the, the scope is endless with with a Highland pony. You can do multi day treks in the Highlands, and you know, almost sort of mirror backcountry riding that you would get in the states. Um, you know, go out and oh, bivy biv, biv, an on the hill, and you can tie them up or you know, um, sort of leave them to, to it for the night, and uh, the next morning they're still close by and head on and do another 20 30 miles oh, when you end up doing that i think we need to make a plan because that sounds amazing yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's bring a bit of that back country to scotland yeah well you know there's so many old droving roads that are that are out there that are still passable and um yeah it's probably quite possible to travel still the length of scotland and you know only negotiate a few roads that would, that would make a brilliant wonderful. story yeah yeah absolutely I, I just finished a book and i Forgive me, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the the author, but it was written in the 60s. And he bought a Highland Pony in Fife and then rode or walked with this Highland Pony all the way up to John O'Groats and then along the top of Scotland and then down, ended up selling it to a crofter on the Isle of Mull. Um, but that, that took him about six months and he walked 30, 40 miles a day. Um, but by the end of it, it was up to 40 miles. But initially... Stamina-wise, the pony and him could only manage about 20 miles a day. But yeah, it was quite an insight. I love stories like that. A real insight. And, and the pony got stuck in bogs and uh, he thought, you know, gosh, this is it. You know, he's up to his up to his uh, waist now in the bog. And it's, all, it's like the never-ending story. It'll all be over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we first, I'm trying to work out where we first met. You came and saw us at Schoon, the Scottish Game Fair, quite a few years ago. I did indeed, I yeah. Um, yeah. Just to... Say hello. Yeah, I, I think we'd basically set up. Well, uh, when in the meeting today, you said you set up your company four years ago. So set up the company four and a half years ago. Yeah. yeah, so like just before we set up ours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then probably you you were probably up and, and running and motoring along before us because it took us a couple of years to get things going, get the website going, and mm. um, so just explain for for people listening. Soundgrass Travel is your company, but what do you do? Well, essentially. We design tailor-made um, journeys and, and holidays for people to Africa, Scandinavia, and Scotland. Um, and they're very specific sort of bespoke journeys based on the client's interests and, and, and needs or uh, all their dreams. I mean, uh, you know, people come to us with very random requests sometimes, and it can be quite uh, challenging, but also quite fun to try and put these things together for people. Um, you know, spurious requests that almost require sort of... Uh, journalistic investigatory approach where you know making 50 phone calls to try and narrow it down and find the right person to speak to and hook them up with whilst they're in the country so frame this a little bit uh, I, I, want, I want to dig more into that because I think it's suddenly do that the tell me your kind of backstory I, I mean even so even to the extent of uh, your sort of personal interest in it because you're doing something that you love because you you love the travel and adventure yourself where did that come from even before you started working within the industry well, it's funny you asked that actually because I um, recently was given a a, a present um, by my mother-in-law actually and um, she gave me w one of these old boys own annuals you know and, and this thing it's, it says inside you know it's written out to some you know boy wearing knee-high shorts socks and shorts but 1934 is the date inside it and it's packed with amazing old stories you know they're only like two pages long but you know hundreds of different stories about all sorts of high adventure back in the day and I think my interest in adventure and, and, and exploration stems from days uh, you know in the school library reading you know racing through all these sorts of, of titles and books and um, that, willing yourself to these places yeah absolutely and you know 
I've always had a vivid imagination. So to be able to read those things, I could, I could live it. And then obviously as you get older and, you know, you realize you can actually go and do these things or try and recreate them. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's always been a passion of mine. Um, having, you know, being, being a, a country boy, I've always grown, grown up and loved wildlife um i've taken a keen interest in in birding that was probably my my met my first interest on the wildlife side of things my father taught me all the bird species in the uk when i was very young and i'd go out and make sort of you know field notes and things like that and so do, you, do you still have some of those oh, i i do probably yes yeah. yeah for some very uh dodgy looking sketches of woodpeckers <laughs> and things like that but um no and i still actually keep a, a monthly record of all my bird sightings and things like that which is fascinating now to look back at and see you know, what how, an archive. How, how early the swallows arrived last yeah. year or whatever. And um, So tell me, this year, did they arrive early or late? Um, this year they were a wee bit earlier, actually. But last year they were late, weren't they? Uh, last year they were quite late, yeah. But we're only talking like a week difference. Um, but, you know, obviously different you know, species arrive at different times, but um, the swallows do te- te- tend to arrive slightly after the martins here. Well, the sand martins always arrive you know, a week to ten days earlier. Um, which is interesting, and then swifts come in, come in last, really up here. Um, but yeah, and it's uh, I, I, I love looking back at that and and seeing. Obviously, the time of year makes a big difference, and where you go, of course. The west coast of Scotland, uh, you know, I think in May I saw about forty six species, um, which is fairly good, you know, for somebody that's glued to the, the office chair, yeah. um, you know, quite a bit, and to get out and see, you know, things like um, you know, hen harriers and things like that is, is wonderful. Yeah, it's, um, but uh, no, so my interest in uh, exploration and travel came about through reading as a, as a kid. And then um, after university, I was at the Royal Agricultural College where I studied land management. So again, sort of always knew in my mind I was going to have See some... See where that direction's well, you know, chugging along in the, all in the same way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, no, even at school, I mean, I set up at school the ferreting club. And um, really? so, yeah, my, my, my idea was, uh, you know, a far better thing to do on a, on a afternoon than running around the athletics track would be potentially to go out, you know, ferreting or... Uh, and get some rabbits. Exactly. And uh, that's what we did. And we obviously sneak a, a, a you know, four pack of Foster's Lager. <laughs> <us> and, <laughs> so, it yeah. was maybe an ulterior motive. <laughs> yeah. But no, those days were, were, were glorious days. And that extended um, through to going on to university where I had the idea of, um, you know, doing land management and essentially wanting to go on and become a factor of an estate here in Scotland um, because, you know, I could see the benefits and perks of that lifestyle. You know, as a, as a young boy, I realized that. Um, but then, yeah, didn't uh, didn't decide to go down that road and ended up going straight to Africa after university where I... Man learned, after my own heart. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And um, y- you know the pull of Africa, but mm. um, and certainly once you've been, that pull remains and, and keeps reeling you back in. It's the first thing I say to people, like because we arranged a, a hunting trip there for some clients who had been on our wilderness hunts here. And my only warning to them, was, uh, apart from giving them a very short list of stuff they needed to take, was I'm warning all of you that if you go on this trip... You will always have the, feel the need to go back. Yeah, absolutely. So don't forget that because it'll be with you forever. And I'm 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 almost sorry because nothing will ever be quite the same again. No, <laughs> and they all came true. back and they emailed me like a couple of weeks later. It's like you know how you said to us before you left. So, you were absolutely right. Yeah, it's so difficult to sort of describe why that is the case, yeah. but certainly it's the case. It's um, it's one of these intoxicating places, and I think perhaps perhaps the fact that you know humankind originates from there. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe some kind of deep psychological thing, but uh, no, wonderful thing to do to go and spend any time in Africa. And so, what uh, were you doing there? So, I 
went out to visit some friends yep. and realized, hold on a minute, this place is fantastic. I do have a family connection with Africa. My great grandfather emigrated to Cape Town and, um, yeah, so he had, he obviously had the vision and, um, in a weird way when I'm in Cape Town, I sort of have that back in the back of my mind and it's nice to know that my great grandfather was there and probably knew of the Mount Nelson hotel back, you know, that those sorts of things. And that, you know, that historical, that personal historical context is so beautiful. And sometimes, especially if you know that you've got family back there, sometimes you will go places and you only find out afterwards that there is a, like a historical connection there. And that's happened a few times to me in Africa and it's, I don't know whether it's just my brain telling me that you feel more there. I don't, in a way, I don't even care because it just feels good. But no, no, it's I, nice. I totally, totally get that. And obviously, the imagination can run wild, and you can imagine you know, the paddle steamers coming in and out of Cape Town Harbour and so on. And but yeah, so emailed a lot of game reserves when I was when I was about to leave Africa, having stayed with my friend and had a wonderful time. And you know, I realized, hold on, this is where I need to stay. I need to put some roots down here for you know x amount of time and work and work out a way of staying in africa and so as i say emailed a number of game reserves and um, a handful got back to me most of them were sort of no sadly we don't need anybody but one of them was you know one or two of them were, um yeah we, we we need somebody to come and help out on the lodge so i said yes please and that was me there for you know almost two years um, a long time i didn't realize it was quite that long yeah it was um yeah it was it was just a magical period of my life and um it's something that i'm now fortunate enough to sort of revisit in my memories um from time to time as well because you know i think it's important that you, you can go traveling a lot in life and you can do all these wonderful things but sometimes it's nice to sort of sit down and have almost alone time and go back to these places in your mind because if you don't do that then you know what's the point what's in going what? to these places in a way you know, I, when i'm having conversations with people about sort of life direction when you're having those deep and meaningful chats at the end of the day, you know, when you're old and sitting in your armchair, all you've got is the memories of the things you've done. Exactly. So it's yeah. so important to firstly create great memories, but secondly remember them. Yeah, 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 and, and to take the time to remember them because, I and mean, that's my worry actually. On a sort of rant for two seconds <laughs> about so uh, about um, you know, digital information, and you know, we've got we've all got thousands of images on our on our memory cards and on our clouds and things but actually how often does, does does the average person go back and look at those things and whereas the old school photographs that you print off and look at the album that's a wonderful thing yeah, and i think it's there yeah, forever people yeah i personally need to make the time to print off some of these these wonderful photographs it's a good habit to get into like once a once a year end of the year when you've got a bit of downtime things of you know are winding down for christmas new year look out 200 photos from your year and just because it costs nothing now to print them you know it's pennies but like per print and you can upload them all online and then you get them through the you know the letterbox a week later and people need to do that i think we've started to do it recently that's a very good idea yeah you're right you can get them for sort of 10 pounds and print off a lovely book or something yeah yeah, um, yeah so uh africa working on the game reserve and um you know that that was a special time of my life and um they quickly realized that i could do more than just pull pints and help out with a bit of diy so i was quickly sort of sh showing people around the game reserve um enthusing about you know the planes game and, and this is a rhino <laughs> yeah exactly uh don't get too close yeah um but so yeah i enjoyed that absolutely loved it and um eventually my time was sort of coming naturally to an end in Africa. I had to come back to the UK for family reasons and came back and 
Then, you know, with my background at Sirencester, which is land management and property, um, I fell into the property industry for a little while, but realized again, I was going down the wrong road. I realized mm. that was more office. That was, you know, the, just the need to get a job when I came back. Yeah, and I was actually in property. We've all been there. Yeah, pro- property auctions, which was quite good fun. But um, yeah, decided to put my travel experience, my African knowledge to, to good use, thankfully, and um, landed a job at a great travel company down in, in the south of England, um, selling trips to tailor-made trips to safari destinations. Um, but and then you had the on-the-ground knowledge, so it's perfect. Exactly, yeah. It's well, so important with these things to like, speak, with, not just with authority, because you can speak with authority and know nothing, <laughs> but speak with authority about something that you can genuinely um, tell people about because you've been there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's totally noticeable as well. I mean, if you get on the phone to somebody in the travel industry and they haven't been to that destination, you can pretty quickly ascertain whether they're reading from a script or or um, you know giving the bs but um no it's uh it makes a big big difference from in terms of what we do and everything that we do now um we only sell places that we know about um you know know de- you know know the owners um have a good re- connection with and rapport with and with that we can you know we can vouch for our trips and and we know the sort of level of service people are going to get and can also sort of tailor things so specifically to them that um you know nothing goes wrong and it exceeds expectations because that's what travel's about. I mean, most people are sort of short on time yeah. and it's at a big expense and you yeah. want to get it right. And, and you want to feel good at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. You want to you want to be... It's a it's an interesting business. I mean, you have to sort of plan it so that people are, are left it's, wanting more as well. A lot of it's people well. management, I suppose, is it? Yeah, people management. Ex- and expectation. expectation management. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that comes about through ascertaining what people... You know what, where their comfort level is, and um, and what they've done previously. I like to when I speak to clients, we find out you know about their previous holidays and what they enjoyed on those holidays, and and then sort of you know I can work out in our own minds where their level is on on this next trip that might be pushing the boundary slightly. But um, yeah, we always do try and include something that sort of puts people outside their comfort zone a little yeah. bit because I think that's where memories are made. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It's not, and sometimes I mean. You know, this is it's very different depending on who you are. So it's a very, this is a very personal thing. But for me personally, some of the best things that I've ever done have actually been pretty uncomfortable at the time. And having done quite a lot of experiences like that, I know that this feels freaking awful right now. Like I can, I'm thinking the first thing that pops into my mind was Nepal two years ago at like 17,000 feet. I'm feeling pretty crappy <laughs> because I've got a little bit of altitude sickness and we're eight days in. Uh, but I knew fine well, having been in similar situations before, that in a couple of weeks' time, when I reflect back on that, it's going to be one of the best experiences of my life. And it's going to be partly be because it was like on the edge of my comfort zone, or actually maybe just beyond it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's, That's an extreme um, example, that, but it doesn't always have to be like that. But just, you know, it can be anything. You know, yeah. maybe you don't like boats and yeah, no, you're absolutely. doing something that's a little bit on the, on the sea or whatever. Yeah, and, 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 from our point of view, it's about just finding where that that line is, um, you know, based off previous experiences, and you can quickly ascertain. Um, but yeah, there are occasions where occasionally you know, a, a client will, um, you know, say say they're into mountaineering, but their idea of mountaineering could be quite different. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably important to qualify that exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the uh, the comfort zone thing is important to us, but um, yeah, no, likewise, Byron, I've, I've had I know you're kind of you're quite similar to me in that regard. I think yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely had so many travel experiences where you're thinking, 
goodness gracious, why did I sign up to do this? I might or, die yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but those really, they really are yeah. the, the things that are seared on your, on your memory. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I remember walking through this bloody boulder field with Simon and Nepal. We talked about it in the podcast that we recorded after we came off the mountains. And at that point in time, it was the most dangerous thing I'd ever done in my life. Because I'm looking at this, yeah. you know, millions of tons of stones above me. You can see where everything slipped. Yeah. Nothing is stable. And you know that it's only, it would just be a matter of bad luck yeah. that something slips above you and crushes you. Absolutely. There were, there's not much you could do about it. You know, you can only pick a, a stone to stand on as you're going up and, you know, it's an hour through this boulder field. I kept on saying, Simon, like, if I was by myself, I would not be walking up there because to me, that risk level looks too high. But these guys who walk it all the time are guides. You know, they just, they were like mountain goats. They thought nothing of it. Yeah, no, I think the mountains in, in particular are, um, not to be underestimated and, that, and certainly some of my most uh, memorable points in terms of crossing the line of uh, comfort uh, come from being in, in the mountains. mountains yeah so you climb Kilimanjaro uh, climb Kilimanjaro yeah. and uh, also climb Mont Blanc in uh, in France or, and that that actually is probably my most uh, that's pretty hairy, serious yeah that's my most hairy sort of mountaineering so, uh, experience what made you go and do that because um, well living in Scotland obviously bagged yeah. quite a few Munros and, and thought well that's a slightly larger Munro probably quite achievable just slightly um, but no actually again sort of reading reading as a child about Mallory and mm. and, and, and you know I know that those Got guys that fire well those guys they um, in their tweed they managed to climb <laughs> places like summer holidays back in the day for the landed gentry and, and yeah. you know, aristocrats from Britain would be pop down to Mont Blanc and climb a few Climb a few mountains in the area. So, yeah, did that. But I remember very, very vividly, you know, essentially one foot wrong and you would be dead, you know. And uh, but those memories are, are again, serious. You made it to the top? Uh, made it to the top. And, um, was, it, was there ever a point on your way up where you thought, I actually don't know if I can do this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Most, most, most of the time, to be honest. And um, You were obviously in an organized group that were doing it. Yeah. I was myself, my best friend, a mountain guide, and then actually another mountain guide and a, and a client from uh, Romania. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a real eye-opening experience and we didn't choose the, uh, the, the most obvious tourist route, which I think it's called the Guta route. We ended up going up, um, from the Cosmic's, um, hut side, which is, um, a fairly technical climb where, you know, you, you've got ro ropes and ice axes and crampons and, um, yeah, I mean. So how, how long's the, the climb from the last, uh, base that, that, camp that you leave? That's actually done in a day. So, the whole thing? Um, well, yeah. So, essentially, you would have your night up at the Cosmics okay. hut, um, which is, um, yeah. So, then that morning, you'd set off at about three in the morning with head torches, um, which I find quite tricky, actually, walking at night with a head torch. Yeah. I sort of lose my orientation and balance. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but, no, that that, that was uh, amazing. And then Kilimanjaro was another sort of high altitude thing, which is even higher, 19,000 feet. Yeah, it's high, actually. Yeah. It's super high. And... Um, at the time, I was extremely fit from road cycling. Um, Sometimes worse. Yeah, and I, think the it, I really think it was. Yeah. You know, I was used to aerobic respiration down down on the on the road bike at lower altitudes, and to be able to go to Kilimanjaro, and you know, I, I thought, well, I'm fit, I can do this. But actually, I, at the top of Kilimanjaro, I could only take about three or four steps before Dying. needing a break. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. The it was the one thing. It it was the only thing actually about um, the trip. Uh, filming in Nepal that I was worried about was at that point in time I had no idea how my body reacted to altitude yeah. 
And there's nothing you can do about that apart from go to altitude to find out. Exactly. And the fittest people in the world can sometimes just react very badly to it. I mean, look at, um, and I don't really know her story that that well, but Victoria, Victoria Pendleton, Pendleton yeah. would try to climb uh, Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. And what stopped her, from my understanding, was the the inability to cope with the altitude. And yeah, yet, absolutely. you won't find a fitter person on the planet. No, exactly. Um, no, and that's... that's um, yeah, it's only through going to those altitudes that you can, that you can learn. I mean, obviously there are things like diamox that you can take. Yeah, but, I, mean, um, I didn't take any. Again, our guides told us I took half a tablet yeah. at fourteen thousand. There's and it made me feel really crappy. There's mixed reviews all yeah. about that, but um, yeah, I do remember drinking tons of water and it coming out as fast as it was going in. <laughs> it's weird that. Yeah, um, but uh, no, we made it to the top of Killy, and again, another one of those lifelong ambitions and and, and achievements, which is just. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was top and crawled down. Yeah, uh, no, actually, you almost ski down because of, yeah. because of the volcanic ash. You sort uh, of, you know, it's so fine, and you yeah. just sort of, it's very steep, and you just come down, and yeah, you know, you've got your walking poles as extra legs, but yeah, you, know, you come off the mountain pretty quickly. Um, so you, you, know, you descend several thousands of feet, um, and then you're sort of after summiting at dawn, more or less. Mm. You, you're back down. I must lower, feel good. Yeah, it's it's better because the headaches quickly go. Amazing how quick it goes. Mm. Yeah. And to think Sean Conway did it in a penguin suit. What, Killy? Yeah. Really? <laughs> you know the guy me. who did the triathlon of the Britain? Yes. When yeah. we had him on the podcast maybe two years ago. The whole thing he did uh, in a yeah, penguin Yeah, he did the whole suit. thing in a penguin suit. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying that, because he, he, I mean, by his own admission, he's a bit mad. And uh, I mean, you have to be to do a triathlon of the Great Britain. And he said that at the time, you know, he wanted to do something, he was obviously raising money for charity, but... Uh, he wanted to do something that was just a bit out there. And he nearly didn't do it in the penguin suit because he didn't want to diminish the challenge of doing it for all those people. It, you know, it doesn't matter how you do it, it's still tough. Absolutely. And he didn't want to make it look like he was taking the piss because he's doing it in a penguin suit. He did it in the, in the end, and I think it, you know, it came across fine. But it was on his mind. Like He didn't want that because that's not why he was doing it. He wasn't doing it to take the piss out of people. He was doing it because he's just a crazy guy. <laughs> yeah, he just yeah, thought he that would be more fun. Than, than... <laughs> And of course, he's got great pictures of himself I, at the top of uh, yeah, he, Kilimanjaro in a penguin suit. Uh, but he could have done it as Forrest Gump, as he, you know, he does well, run around. He with... basically is Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the nicest way possible. Uh, yeah. Oh, um, amazing. So, what um, what trips did your company start with? Like, what was your bread and butter in the early days? So, yeah, with the back background being Africa, it was always it Africa, was Africa, yeah, initially. And then actually. Shortly after we, we set up the company, Ebola came along, which was quite a scare for Picking up tourism. again right now. It is indeed. Yeah, you're right. And, and, Just and where I'm going. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's it's these sorts of things. Um, so that must have affected you. They badly, can have quite quite severe ripples through the tourism industry and, you know, things. Even though, the, I mean, there was no Ebola in South Africa. No, no, absolutely but, not. And that's where some of your tours were. It but is Did indeed, it just yeah. put people off because the people think Africa, Ebola, are exactly. not going? Well, sadly, a lot of people around the world think Africa is a country, you know. So, <laughs> so, God. so, and, you know, um, yeah, so if, if people think Africa, Ebola, they think, well, gosh, we can't go to anywhere you know, even though it's you know several several thousands of miles away yeah. from where where it might be but um yeah so that came along and um thankfully at that point in time i was already diversifying into selling trips to scandinavia okay. which is another area of, of obvious interest what for a us great place uh, amazing amazing place and um you know obviously completely different to africa but at the same time on a par in terms of uh experiential travel mm wonderful sort of adventurous experiences um equally sort of lovely luxury lodges and properties and cabins um so makes it made a great deal of sense for us to start selling trips there as well um so what, what kind of things could people do with you in scandinavia that, or that you've taken clients on before 
Um, so in Scandinavia, I mean, it's it, it's mirrors to some degree how an African trip would work in the sense that you know people are meeting and greeted and uh, taken great care of and have transfers all organised for them. They're staying in uh, wonderful lodges and camps that are often extremely well completely unique um you know one-of-a-kind properties such as you know tree hotels and um, tp camps in the middle of the of the pine forests in the middle of nowhere um so yeah people northern light strips snowmobile safaris uh, dog sledding tri- trips whether that be a single day or a multi-day trip out across the tundra um so these sorts of things and there, there's bucket list stuff really and and um but but it goes beyond just sort of you know box ticking and saying right i've had my half day with a dog sledding guide it's um what we try and do is hook somebody up with somebody that's very much a local so it's very authentic and they might meet a a dog sledding guide but on that day they might sort of hook up with a reindeer herder you know take the dogs all the way out to somebody that's herding their reindeer across the tundra and living out with the herd and following them in a nomadic style Uh, and these sorts of experiences you know that's that's really that's when people come back home they're like wow that was just amazing I feel like I've I've really understood it. and experienced Scandinavia and I think it's so important and I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast when I've been talking about you know, places that I've been is that the best experiences that I've had have been actually when I've not been a tourist I have been with local people who have ended up being my friends you know over years of doing business or filming or whatever and you get a real feel of the place and and I I know from uh, you know trips that you and I have been on together like that's your aim for your clients is to deliver something where you're more than just a tourist yeah and and actually um you know the industry with us getting sort of quite bizarre requests sometimes from people, um, it's, it's a flexible and interesting industry. I mean, I'm, I'm able to sort of really think outside the box and hook people up with off-market experiences yeah. in a sense. You know, you, you, you know, I might know somebody... Things that, that aren't in the brochure. Exactly. I might know somebody that, um, you know, lives because they love it themselves for a few months of the year in a cabin right in the middle of, you know, the Norwegian forest. Um, and because I know that person, I can, I can you know, send a client there and, and they can have an experience that you just can't find uh, you know, on the Rough Guide website or yeah. whatever it might be. Um, yeah, so that's really what, we, what we're what we all about. And, and we, we have that concept in Scandinavia, in Africa, and also here in Scotland. And we do some amazing things in Scotland as well on a similar sort of similar sort of ethos. I want to talk about our, our home country here in a minute. But before we get to that, Svalbard. Yeah. Because that was the first sort of trip and journey we we did together. And it was... Was it two years ago? Yes, it was two. No, no, it will be two years ago in March. Two years so ago not, in March. One and okay, half, one yeah. and a half years. Yeah. I was going to say, surely not that much time has passed. No. <laughs> I mean, a, a place that I knew the name of at the time and knew well, where it was. Well, well in, most, most people know of it um, perhaps more uh, as, as Spitsbergen. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but I never, I, I never thought I would have a reason to go there other than I, I wanted to go there. And then uh, you came up with this amazing idea that we should go there and, and film and create some content around your ambition to take clients there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, since since that film, we've gone on and had a number of clients go up there and enjoy multiple day expeditions. Um, it, it's been fantastic. The reception to that movie actually has been wonderful. And uh, I think, yeah, we managed to capture a great sort of, seven minute overview of of how fantastic it is (laughs) in seven minutes it's so hard to do and and to capture those sort of landscapes that are just endless literally um to give some perspective i mean if you're imagining 
Svalbard, the archipelago, it's you know an area probably a wee bit bigger than Scotland, um, with one main settlement as the sort of hub for everybody, which has only got sort of maybe fifteen hundred to two thousand people, depending on the season, uh, living there permanently, and um, beyond that, absolutely nothing other than you know fjords and glaciers and the and, odd like tiny settlement that. Yeah. tourists visit like uh, Eastfjord Radio and- yes exactly yeah I mean but if you can call that a settlement those, those sorts yeah. of places yeah it's not really a settlement was no. it <laughs> well Eastfjord is very interesting I mean there's a the, the, the Svalbard archipelago was um, sort of quite heavily of interest during the Second World War mm. because it allowed you know good weather forecast predictions and obviously with so many weather weather systems coming in from the, the North Atlantic and from the Arctic region it allowed the Nazis and the, and, and the Allied forces to predict things quite significantly uh, and very well. With such a heavy naval component to that that Na- fight, it was really important. Naval as well. Obviously, the Arctic yeah. convoys were coming in there from America supplying Russia and so on. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a contested area. But through that period of history, there were radio bases and things like that built in these most r- random and desolate locations you know, down remote fjords um, that are only frequented by polar bears and, and the odd, previous, Arctic pre- Fox, previously yeah. the odd uh, you know, bearded explorer. <laughs> um, so those places were just left after the war and, and one or two of them have now been converted into, um, you know, eco-friendly luxury hideaways for tourism. And um, obviously one of which we went to is Fjord Radio. It's just incredible. What a place. Yeah, in I fact. Mean, the place is as cool as the journey to get there. Yeah, yeah, the journey to get there. I mean, it, what is it? 110 kilometers away from yeah. Longyearbyen. I think we did in because in the three days in between, I think we did 340 k's or something on the yeah. snow bikes. Yeah, and and, yeah, and the, they are great fun to to ride around and, and and drive, and certainly in a terrain like that. I mean, most snow biking stuff that you do on mainland Scandinavia is it's fairly flat terrain, pretty um, tame. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, you're following forest portages and tracks that are frequented. You know, and have been for many, many years by people. Um, but you know, up in Svalbard, it's a completely raw environment, and you're sort of almost trail trailblazing. Yeah, you, um, you feel like an explorer. Yeah, in a little way. Well, there's also that, as we mentioned, that sort of element of stepping out of your comfort zone, and you know, you're going across a glacier, and you know that there are potential crevasses beneath you, or you're crossing a frozen lake, and the ice is creaking beneath the snow bike, and you're thinking, "Can this me?" <laughs> but the guide's going on ahead confidently, so you're thinking, "Well, it's all fine." But uh, and and that. Those sorts of experiences all add up to make somewhere like Svalbard just uh, truly unique. And actually, you could you could you can't really find the experience you have in Svalbard anywhere else in the world because it's. I don't think so. It's right at the end of where it's possible to go. Yeah. I mean, other than it's almost I'm, at the end of the world. I mean, it is. It's six hundred and fifty yeah. miles south of the North Pole, and um, you know, other than going to Antarctica, um, there isn't really. Svalbard, Longyearbyen itself, the town, the main settlement, is the the, the the most far north you can fly on a commercial flight in the world. So beyond that, you know, you're looking at doing a run off finds and chartering a, a yeah. plane or something and going up right up to the, the ice cap. Um, but yeah, I can't recommend highly enough going up to Svalbard really um, in the winter months when it's um, at, at its most raw and um, you really realise that you're smaller than, than nature and um you know the, the coldest thing in your face and um yeah it's it's it is a you know it's a it's a real honest authentic arctic experience mm, and yeah. that i love that yeah i mean yeah it, it's 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 dream stuff really yeah. because um you know it, it takes it, a lot to like coming home and i'd spent time above the arctic circle uh, circle in sweden before that trip um, but that was the most extreme I'd been in in terms of like cold conditions. 
Um, and it took some time to pro properly process it in my mind when I came home because it's so far removed from what we are used to in our daily lives and for most of the world, so far removed from what our daily lives are in the rest of the, rest yeah, of the world. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it truly is. And it's, it's just the combination of all of the all of the factors that you experience up in that sort of environment you know just managing the cold and the fact that if you take your glove off for 30 seconds you know that's about as much as you can do before having to put them back in but then there's that lag time of another five minutes whilst your hand warms back up yeah and, yeah i'm yeah, watching so. for frost nip on your nose which my nose went <laughs> yeah. all white when i was on the back one of the snow bikes filming the dog sleds the one day yes yeah the wind chill that yeah day the wind chill bad. and i i to see this, I don't know why, I think I was steaming up my glasses or something, so I pulled my face mask down so that I, I could see my screen again. And I can't remember the name of the, the lady who was riding the bike that day, but um, she'd obviously like look back because she was asking, like, do you want, where do you want me to go? Because I had the steady cam out. And she looked back the one time, I was like, pull your face up, your nose has gone white. And then I, obviously I couldn't feel anything. And then I pulled my, uh, my buff up. And like two minutes later, my nose felt like it was on fire because really? all the blood was coming back. To oh me. goodness, yeah. 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 Daryl actually, he got he, for a couple of weeks after he had like a little black he mark a, a at the end burn. of his, yeah, yeah. yeah, a little bit, tiny little bit of frost nip on his nose. Yeah, well, I, those sorts of things. But you know, the guides that you're with, they're polar guides. You know, then they're. they're mostly Norwegian and the Norwegians are born into that environment yeah. and, and, and their They're idea is, skis on, I heard. their idea of adventure <laughs> is quite different to yeah. most of the world's actually and um, so they're the, the absolute best people to be with in that environment and they look after you and they as as they as they did with you they they spot these things very early on um, because you, you can get caught so out it can be serious mm. absolutely yeah uh, you arranged um an expedition recently though where people were walking to one of the peaks yes yeah yeah. that's that, exciting well that was um quite a privilege to be yeah. to be a part of in the sense that um few people in the world get to stand on that particular peak which is the highest peak within the svalbard archipelago um so it's, it's around about five and a half thousand feet um but you know to get there is about a four-day dog sledding expedition into the interior of spitsberg and the largest yeah. island and um you know it's right in the heart of sort of glacial country and um yeah you're, you're going out there with a team of dogs each driving your own team of six huskies with your sled and um camping essentially every night um at, at night time you're setting up the dogs as a perimeter guard around the camp to for, polar bears. for protection against polar bears yeah and they serve as the best protection much better than any of the trip wires and flares um, business the dogs will start howling when their bears you know, 10 kilometers away mm -hmm. they can smell it and and um and the polar bears know well that's 56 huskies there better yeah. not yeah better i'll go somewhere else make though. a wee detour yeah. yeah um so but that's just i mean that in itself those sorts of experiences crawling into your tent knowing you've got 56 huskies outside in a perimeter circle staked out every two meters it's amazing and 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 then when they start singing and howling and then suddenly just stop like there's a lead you know conductor dog that says stop and it just and then goes pan quiet and you just hear the wind rustling the tent and it's those experiences stay I'm with you forever. There. i'm back there right now yeah well, those experiences stay with you forever and that trip in particular um they were very lucky on the summit day because um they had clear blue skies and um all made it to the summit and yeah the two, two of the guys on the trip were from harvard university so they were they were really chuffed and actually you know they were doing some charitable work and took up their flags and got great photographs oh, and things incredible and so um yeah really privileged to be able I don't to think send it, no one had been that. up there for a couple of years yeah it was at least a couple of years because the conditions the year before weren't quite so good um with climate change things are more unpredictable up there mm. 
um, because you have to do that trip fairly late in the season. So that trip was almost, yeah, back end of April. Hmm. Um, Even later than when we were there. Absolutely, yeah, by by probably six weeks. Yeah. Um, So, you know, you've got fantastic daylight, but um, more stable weather fronts on paper. Um, But yeah, of course, with global warming, snow conditions can be a bit sketchy. Um, So yeah, I mean, global warming is affecting the area. Um, So yeah, things are changing up there, but people have to be adaptable. How much does that worry you? I mean, not not necessarily from a business point of view, because that's almost kind of like a selfish view, but just um, you, because you've traveled so much you and you speak to so many interesting people like the meeting we just had today, it becomes more even more real when you have more information than uh, maybe your average person. Totally, totally. And, um, you know, there are several products in Svalbard that we that we aren't able to sell with with confidence anymore. Um, you know, we used to sell regularly a, a fantastic ship that would be more or less. We could deliber- do that when we yeah, were there. It was it was deliberately sort of yeah. trapped in the ice during the winter months and was, would act as a base station for people to explore from. Um, but that product now is is um, impossible to sell with any regularity. Um, so we've had to drop because that. It just doesn't freeze. Yeah, it just doesn't freeze um, with the consistency, or, or, or the season's only a month long, so it's logistically not worth bothering. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a funny one because you know we're still getting hard winters, but then the next winter will be balmy. So yeah, but it does worry me a lot, and certainly with the polar regions, how things are sort of happening a lot quicker. Yeah, um, and they're they're quite fragile. Oh, extremely fragile. Yeah, and and. Um, you know, the nature won't have a time, you know, won't have the opportunity to catch up. Because it's happening too yeah, quickly. Exactly. So um, there will be species that, that, that suffer, um, uh, you know, tremendously. Um, and I think, yeah, the whole world needs to pull their finger out. Pull their finger out. And I think it's, it can sometimes be difficult to try and conceptualize as an individual person what you can do. And if you feel that, I think the best thing that you can start doing is just read a little bit more so that you can try and understand it. Yeah. Because that makes a difference in terms of the actions that you take. Yeah, it does. Even it's, even if it's not necessarily um, immediate or uh, groundbreaking in terms of changing your lifestyle, it's um, these things sink into the subconscious, and actually, over time, you'll you'll end up changing the way you operate. And and then perhaps when major changes are enforced on you, it's not such a surprise, and actually, you take it more in your stride. And mm-hmm. you know, things like the future, which will be electric cars and or even hydrogen cars. These sorts of things, you know, it's coming. Yeah, and people need to adapt to it, I guess. Mm. Even even us with our old defenders. <laughs> That's going to be a hard one. It's going to be a hard one. Hopefully, there'll be a replacement drop in electric engine that I can pop into my old TD five. Yeah, so, some some Land Rover special. Which will somewhere. be a TDE we'll... by then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, back to Scotland. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is something Daryl and I talk about probably like in every second podcast, how easy it is to take for granted what is on your doorstep because we live in a freaking awesome country. Oh, we do, we do. And there's so much to do here and yet so many people who live here never see any of it. You're absolutely right. And I think to some degree uh, for us, um, you know, having traveled to other parts of the world a lot and realizing that, you know, when I lived, well, when I lived on the game reserve in Africa, it was, it was a four hour drive to Johannesburg, which was the nearest city. And, and we were 40 kilometers from the nearest road, in fact, where we were. And, um, you know, once you're used to distances like that, then the idea of traveling around Scotland, you know, it's easy to think, oh, well, it's quite, you know, it's three and a half hours over through Glencoe to so the West what? Coast. That's nothing. Yeah. So if you get, if you get past that, um, even people down, you know, down in the South of England, they can, they can get on the sleeper train from London or they can be in the car and up in Scotland the next, you know, that next morning. And, um, yeah, we are very lucky to live in Scotland, certainly with, with, with the right to roam access. We yeah. can go anywhere. A lot of people don't appreciate that 
or a lot of people here don't appreciate how important that is or how special it is. I would agree, yeah. Um, no, it's amazing how many local Scots have not explored their own country. But um, we're, we, you know, we are lucky in the sense we have the time and ability to do that through work as well. Yeah, so. true. Now, you do... Um, I think one of the, I saw a picture that you put up the other day. It was one of your um, arranged trips. I think you'd been out with taking some clients up the west coast, and you you've got a teepee tent that's kind of similar to us. And you were on this beautiful beach where you'd uh, I could see the Land Rover just in in the corner there. I mean, it just it didn't even look like this country. It seemed so idyllic. Tell tell me a little bit about um, that small component component of what I imagine was a, was a bigger trip because. I imagine people think that that kind of thing's not possible, but I mean, that's yeah. what you do. Yeah, I mean, and, and as you say, a lot of people message us after that saying, is that even the UK? You know, did they really? Yeah, 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 because it does actually look like, you know, northern Norway. Yeah. Uh, you've got the small isles, you know, Rumeg and Muck, which are out in front, you know, I mean, 10 kilometers offshore, and they just look like something that's rising out of, you know, Lofton or something rather than the west coast of Scotland. Um, but, you know, that, that, that little experience was a, a one-nighter because those sorts of experiences aren't necessarily you know, beyond one night because they're quite raw and people like to get back and have a proper shower and yep. facilities. Um, but, you yeah, know, offering those experiences, it's, um, it's again, working on the same ethos as, as what we do in Scandinavia and Africa. It's getting people out of their comfort zone, doing something they wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, they may not even have the, the equipment to do that themselves. So to be able to come to Scotland and put them in such a location where they can have, you know, for all intents and purposes, a private beach and wake up looking or, or go to sleep watching the sun slip behind offshore Hebridean mount mountains yeah. is wonderful. Amazing. Um, so yeah, well that's, that's the sort of experience we're, we're organizing um, to get to that particular location. It's a Land Rover ride, ride in. It's um, completely wild camping. There's no access really to it. So you have to cross a river and, and drive down a bumpy farm So you track. need this vehicle that we're sitting in right now. Yeah. Occasionally uh, the snorkel comes into use. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I'm always looking for an excuse to, to buy a snorkel that I don't have yet. <laughs> other, other than the fact they do it, cool yeah. i was about to say that's about the only reason you need right yeah it looks cool um have you got anything coming up personally like in the next 12 months or are you just so busy uh, sorting stuff with clients that you don't have time to do that at the moment i'm well you know we're, we're so busy we don't have uh holiday plans or anything like that but you know every one of our trips in some in some way is a holiday for, yeah you know, obviously it's work and you've got to be on it and make sure everybody's happy and things are going smoothly but to be able to be you know one day up, up, up on Sky, and then the next day in Sutherland, and it's just fantastic. So for us, it works. There are worse jobs yeah, in the world. Yeah. So work is not the the worst thing in the world for us, as you say. And uh, but you know, if I was if I was looking at um, travel in the not too distant future, Africa's back on the radar for it me is. from a personal point of view. Anywhere in particular you want to go somewhere um, you haven't been before? I would like to go to Namibia. Um, oh yeah. No, it's, um, You've been to Namibia before, though. I've been to Namibia before, but I've not sort of properly explored with you know. You know, a four by four and yeah. time essentially. Yeah, so just thing, because it? actually, we were in Morocco in February and um, we were there with a Land Rover Discovery Four. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you've just brought that up. I wanted to ask you about that. Well, Morocco was eye opening because it was my first ever visit to uh, an you drove from Islamic here. country. Yeah, we drove from Scotland. So that was an epic. Yeah, it's a proper long, overland trip. Yeah, it was a proper. I mean, actually, in a disco for you. So. Yeah, so I I was only in Morocco for ten days and flew back for for work. But um, friend and colleague that I was with. Um, we did a four and a half week trip out there. So, you know, he was, he, he traveled around pretty much all of Morocco. That's proper comfort though. Disco four. Disco four. Very, for very. For an overlander. Yeah, really. And actually, um, 
the the chap I went with is a sort of chief engineer on a private yacht. So if he were to sort of break down in the Sahara, you knew he could sort of solder something back together yeah. or you know hack into the computer. But, but it works. But, but the Discovery Four absolutely faultless, amazing vehicle. Um, and if the rumours are true about the new Defender being you know quite similar to the Discovery Four, then you know obviously with more technology. But um, yeah, I think I'm quite excited about that. Point. Yeah, um, I think we know what it looks like now. Yes, yeah, because they've got them in in Kenya right now. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Although still with some wow. hid, hidden lamps and things, but I, th- I think they look quite good. Yeah, yeah. I think get get a expedition roof rack on there, some jerry cans, Put some bull bars on the front. Yeah, winch. Yeah, snorkel. Absolutely. Job done. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry, we got sidetracked <laughs> by Land Rovers. Uh, I want to hear. I do hear. Want to hear more about your trip? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was that? Was that? Were you looking at something, or was it just one of these opportunities that came up? And you're like, hell, I have to do that. No, it was. It was. A, it was an opportunity that came up. But equally, from a sandgrass travel point of view, it it makes a lot of sense for us to be selling trips to Morocco. It sort of matches in very well with our other sorts of destinations around the world. And um, you know, we. we went there with the view of exploring um, and doing a bit of a recce on fantastic overland routes really um, getting people off the beaten track because a lot of people go somewhere like Morocco and they might visit Marrakesh or Casablanca or even go down to you know climb Tubkul um, but to be able to sort of get into the, to the real Morocco and take a 4x4 up you know day long off-roader tracks passing through remote mountain villages and then you know, the Berber, Berber children run out and wave at you and Ask for bonbon and you know sweet sweeties and things like that. That that's um, that's what a real country exploration is about, and that's what we were wrecking. And we had an amazing trip. We spent a lot of time in the middle Atlas. Um, Atlas mountains. Are and February time, it's still you know still winter, so some of the passes were only open that week before. So we were you know at, at points um, sloshing around in in mud slash snow, and it was really quite exhilarating stuff. And then beyond going you know going further south from the middle Atlas, we'd push down into the northern northern sahara and ran along the algerian border which was quite snow to desert yeah snow to desert and you know minus five degrees up in um up in the atlas mountains at night um to you know nice 27 degrees on the desert plain uh, a couple of days later and driving through the sahara we were following some of the old paris dakar routes which was really cool and um you know occasionally there'd be i miss those days uh, yeah that was a fantastic so after christmas yeah. for new year wasn't it two yeah. weeks worth of the dakar throughout north africa um but no that was that was amazing to drive through what's called fesh fesh you know the, the, the loose sand in in the desert and um we got bogged down a couple of times and tires down yeah tires down and we had all the kit to get us out of that thankfully um but yeah just amazing see camels in in the desert it's just, wild camels yeah wild camels um yeah those experiences again it was um so otherworldly for us you know to wake up in the desert um at dawn and watch the, the sun pictures come up. were amazing it yeah. made it, the pictures that you put up so far just made me want to go and do a desert trip yeah yeah it's, and i've never really been a desert person that's 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 just not it's not my thing. It's not where I feel comfortable. I'm more like a jungle yeah. person. Okay, yeah. Uh, but when I saw that, it's like, yeah. 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 Well, it's one of those... Um, I could do that. Again, that I think I, I think you're pretty similar to me, Byron, in the sense that um, you've probably read stories about, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and, yeah. and these sorts of I've, people. We've just I've been interviewing Levison Wood okay, um, yeah. two weeks ago, and he was, you know, he's done lots of desert stuff. And he, I had a similar sort of feeling when he was telling us about his and when he walked the Nile. And he's walking through the desert there and he doesn't know when they're going to be able to get water. And yeah, that sort of edge of uncertainty with the desert and, and the immediacy of the very real danger if you screw up 
kind of makes it exciting. Oh yeah, yeah, completely. It's um, it's one of those um, places or habitats that is sort of intoxicating, and uh, you know, you, you, you you've got to draw to it again once you've been there. It's it's so special. I mean, um, it actually boggles the mind when you're in somewhere like those sand dunes and you realise how many grains of sand make up the dunes that are. 200 meters my, high and my brain's going to blow up yeah <laughs> how many yeah i mean i've never thought of that before a lot yeah, of grains yeah. of sand yeah, it, it, it does completely boggle the mind yeah yeah um but um of course when you're there you can't help yourself but thinking you know imagine if there wasn't the sort of you know political problems and and, and war issues and things like that in, across the whole of north africa and imagine if you could just take a land rover and drive you know, from Morocco right across to Egypt, as you might have been able to do a few years ago. It's one of my great ambitions. One day, yeah, one day I'd love to do that. And I, I'm not sure of the political situation. I hope in my lifetime will be okay to do that. I, I, you, I mean, I think you can still do it, but it takes so much planning. Yeah, planning um, and probably um, and permissions exactly. to do that. It's become it, it wouldn't be that much fun because you probably spend more time getting everything in place than you would doing the actual trip. Yeah, no, definitely. I think. Um, but you know, you, you you can create taster experiences. Yeah, know, sampling. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, you know, depending on how lengthy they are, you can more or less do those trips still. And but there are there are things on on my own personal radar. There's a um, the chap who does the overland uh, books for North Africa, a guy called Chris Scott. He's written a lot of sort of overland guides and things like that. He he still does camel treks from Western Sahara through Algeria and then up into Morocco, which are sort of, you know, 12 day, three or to, to three week long trips where you're trekking with a Berber caravan train and camping in the desert at night. And that must be surreal. Yeah. But that's one of those examples where, you know, it's quite dicey because there's still a threat of, you know, IS and things like that in the area. Um, but um, they're, they're, they're doable and people are still operating these things and, yeah, if you if you ever want to do something like that, then uh, yeah, he's the man to go to. That might, that might have to be added to the very long list I already have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's definitely up there on my list as well. Absolutely, Johnny, it's been great to catch up with you today because we've not seen each other for a little while and talk through some of this stuff again. Yeah, uh, it, I'm it, sure there's people right now thinking. You know, screw the holiday to Tenerife that I had planned. <laughs> Let's have a holiday that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life and an experience that's outside my comfort zone. And uh, if people want to get in contact with you and find out more about what you do, where's the best place to look? Uh, well, the best place would be to go to our website, which is www.sandgrousetravel.com. Sand like the beach, beach grouse like the bird. Um, and um, yeah. From there, you know that that's literally just the landing platform where you yeah, can get you can inspired. Get to all your other portals, you can get inspired. Have a look through the be in, the be inspired section, or have a look at our blog. Um, but you'll quickly see we sell you know a number of destinations. But we also have destinations that aren't necessarily on the website, just that we can create a trip um, through our own resources and connections. If you have a wish, phone Johnny, mm. and I'm sure he can hook you up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I I would love to sit down and brainstorm and come up with a, a trip for anybody. Anybody. I mean, when I'm planning the trips, it's a case of visualizing them and I kind of live them in my own mind. Yeah, you're putting yourself it. in that situation. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's even though I'm at the office desk a lot yeah. of the time, I'm still it's living still these nice trips. Though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Completely. Thanks for taking the time out today. It's been good to catch up with you. I think we both need to get back to work now. Yeah. Tomorrow I fly off to Namibia. Oh, so wow. I need to go and finish packing my bags. Are you flying to Vintook? Uh, no, I'm actually, I'm going to Joburg. I've got a couple of days there. I'm going to okay. see my grandparents, go and see my cousin for the weekend. Cool. 
uh, and then I fly to Namibia. Amazing. And then up to the DRC after that. Wow. Well, that's an so, epic, proper adventure. I'll see you in September. <laughs> yeah, see you in September, absolutely, for the rut. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's it for another two weeks. Though saying that, I mean, this did work quite well, so maybe it would be quite nice to maybe get another show out before the next one. Because there, there, is, there has been a lot happening since you've gone away. Well, you mean just like the two of us? Yeah, just the two of us. We should we should maybe just do one talk about a little bit about the news. Um, we've uh, we've had numerous uh, messages for us to cover the the latest of um, Chris Packham's um, uh, exploits. Uh, I have totally uh, with the Golden Eagles going. <laughs> I'm afraid I have totally switched off to all that while I've been here. I just I almost can't take it anymore. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, the 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 short of it is that uh, two satellite tag golden eagles have gone missing on a Perthshire estate, and uh, they've gone straight to persecution, uh, even though no bodies have been. There's found no evidence to support that. of the eagles as of. There's no evidence to suggest. Um, so obviously, people are naturally a bit upset, saying, um, you know, you can't, you can't say it's one thing when you have absolutely no evidence um it it would be i guess it would be a little bit different if this wasn't the first time that um chris packham has done something like this um and also he's you know he's a high profile person within the bbc in the in the nature world so you know there's a lot of implications when he comes out with uh statements like that I also was reading, I believe, that the the state that they were lost on does wildlife tours, so I'm not 100% sure if it would be in their interest to um, kill two golden eagles if uh, one of your incomes is, in fact, uh, uh, you know, looking at them. Yeah, I suppose we, yeah, we, can, we, can, we can talk about that and thrash it out a bit. I can read up on it. It's uh, it, There's no shortage of information when it comes to <laughs> that sort of stuff coming out. In fact, I did see, as much as I've been trying to avoid it, I did actually happen to see his video on Twitter where he made the statement that driven grouse shooting was finished. Yes, yeah, he did. So I think we'll 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 have a maybe a mini Chris Packham special since I've had so many messages about it, um, trying to tackle it. And if you don't know who Chris Packham is, uh, for the people around the rest of the world who who have, well, they won't know. They likelihood is they don't know who he is. Um, he, Google his name, uh, he, he's a presenter on a, a number of nature programs, including Spring Watch, Winter Watch, for the BBC. Uh, there has been a number of complaints over the la- last few years about, uh, basically his impartiality towards, um, shooting, hunting, basically anything that he doesn't believe in. Uh, and basically the BBC has quite strict rules on this kind of thing, basically saying you can't, you know, you can't be bi- that biased or come out with huge statements if you work for the BBC. But apparently he's not actually directly employed by the BBC. Yeah, he's a contractor. So he can get away with it. He's contracted. So that's how they have that roundabout way of he can say what he wants but actually works for the BBC. Um, so it's an interesting one. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's strange when you can have someone use their position of of uh, in, influence and power, I guess, within the TV world uh, in such a manner and have no consequences. Considering within the UK, uh, 
that his wages for the BBC are paid for by the general members of the public, not myself, because I don't pay. I don't pay the BBC license. I wonder fee, uh, because I, I don't wonder have a TV. if you make broad, uh, sweeping statements like he has done with this, and I need to look into it more. Whether uh, w- with no evidence, which I don't believe there is any, whether that constitutes a slander, because you're basically accusing someone of something with zero evidence, which could detrimentally impact their character. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's someone smarter than us in terms of law uh, that would be able to tell us that if there would be cause for... Yeah, come back um, on that, maybe. I don't know. It was just something, it was com- just something that popped that. into my mind. I imagine in the States, certainly there would be, because you can sue for almost anything over there. I bet you couldn't do that in the States. Um, what, what he what, does. Just mm. come out with a statement. Oh, no. Oh, no. You would be off the TV before you knew yeah. it, I think. Anyway... That that'll be that'll be for the next yeah. show. I think we'll try and record. We'll do a little bit more research, and uh, maybe we can have a few few snippets of his statement and everything on the show from YouTube. So that'll make it a bit more of an there's, interesting show. In fact, oh, I will. I'll make been, a show. Um, a few interest. I don't know if it's actually made it to. Um, I don't know if it made it to the UK press, but there was a another elephant issue here in Namibia while I've while I've been here. Which was an elephant by the name of Fortrecker was was shot and uh, hunted under a problem animal um, permit, um, but, but because he was an animal with a name, and is classed as a, a desert elephant or desert adapted elephant, um, it caused a lot of problems here and a lot of uh, anti-hunting organisations sort of jumping on the back of it. Um, and but the ministry did release the Namibian ministry did release a press statement a couple of days ago, which I read. Uh, I mean, I think whoever wrote it in the in the ministry was probably a bit angry at all the negative press because it's a little bit of a rant. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting yeah. one to dig into because I think a lot of the reason that people were upset about it was, um, and I'm not, I need to look into it a bit more because I'm not sure whether it is a, a perfect scenario. Um, but most of the reason that people were upset was because that they believed that they shot one of the last three desert elephant bulls. Whereas yeah, okay. a desert elephant isn't actually anything other than a southern elephant that is adapted to the desert. Like it is not... A, so geneti- genetically no they're not different. None, none whatsoever. The only thing is that they have the knowledge of how to... Of the, exactly. the trekking. And the interesting part of it, and maybe we, we can maybe cover this, cover this again rather than at the end of a, a already long podcast, but the interesting part of it is that a lot of these desert elephants, the routes that they take to find water and food are along uh, dry riverbeds um, in, the, in the desert. And a yeah. lot of these dry riverbeds are now used um, as a tourist attraction for 4 by 4 trails. So one of the suggestions is that huh. the reason why some of these elephants are becoming a problem is because they can't be, uh, they're basically not being left alone where they want to be, which is in these river riverbeds where there's food. And because there's people in 4x4s driving up all the time as part of like tourism um, uh, trails. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is, as with most of these things, it's far more complicated than it maybe first than, seems. Than it just says yeah. on paper. Yeah. Well, these are all topics that we are going to cover. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, we always welcome emails. Uh, we always welcome suggestions. Uh, 
just anything. We love we love receiving emails from people. Uh, it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. And if you would like the website, it's all the W's, the pacebrothers.com. And you can get all the information there about everything we're up to, uh, including uh, the links for the Patreon and also different ways to listen to the podcast. I actually, today on the Instagram stories, I just sent people to the website instead of an individual podcasting app or anything because I just thought that'd be easier for people to just find their own uh, their own choice. Uh, but I've in fact been using uh, Podbean on my phone, uh, my new Android phone, and that seems to be working really well for the podcasts as well as Spotify. I still haven't figured a way actually on Spotify. There, there will be. I've not looked hard enough to actually download it offline onto your phone, but you can do it with music. So I'm pretty sure you'll be you able can. to do it with you the podcast. You just hit the download button. There's a there's a download oh, okay. button. I haven't looked below. hard enough. It's because I. I uh, it's because I've been using Podbean, so haven't looked hard enough. Uh, oh, I've actually got a suggestion on a podcast if people uh, would like that. I I'm not sure if Byron's listened to to it yet, but it's called This American Life. I I think it's a very big, it's po- huge. big podcast. Uh, yeah, it it's colossal and the the production value is huge as well. Uh, but there's so if you type in This American Life and then dot doppelganger. And then I think it's like 10 minutes into the show. It's about a 25-minute long segment of it. And it's all about uh, whether or not um, basically pig, pig butt or pig asshole uh, or bung, they call it pig bung, uh, can be used as a substitute for calamari because basically there's, there's a story going around that this guy was in like a slaughterhouse basically and there was a big box of these pig bungs and they were like, yeah, they're off to the... To the, know, calamari uh, to, for, for the calamari factory. You know that factory. podcast was actually quite old. And basically, it was, like two thousand. I know it's old. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's and it's got some crazy stats in it as well, which I found mind blowing. One of them was that over fifty percent of all seafood in LA is not the species that it says that you're eating. And then throughout America, I think it's about thirty percent, thirty to forty percent um, across the whole of the U- U.S. is the, the same. So whatever your, whatever is on the menu is not what you're eating in terms of seafood. And this is uh, I don't know about other foods. And this is one of the things that is pushing people towards understanding where their food comes from in terms of like source to plate. Is this massive unknown and unreliability? of purchasing food from normal shops because we're just as consumers we're not being told the truth a lot of the time no and that's the one thing i know as i know exactly where my meats come from most of the time as here i know exactly where it's come from because almost everything that's on the menu is game and i see it being processed in the larder out the back i think it's a lot harder to get away with it with meat though uh, I, I know, I know we had the the horse meat scandal and that here, but I'm talking about a pure piece of steak. It's very different if it was mince, because then obviously with mince you can get away with putting as many different types of meat as you want in it, as long as the color is not too different. But if you just had a solid block of of um, of meat, there is actually quite a distinction between different steaks. There is, but I bet you a lot of people, if you were to test them, probably couldn't tell the difference. I bet you. No, no, not necessarily. Maybe not tell the difference, but I think if if there was something that you were put, like for example, just a beef steak. If you were given a beef steak and then given a piece of game meat, you would go, "That is not beef." 
Yeah, something to dig into that's, at some anyway, point. Anyway, that that that's for that's for another show. And then we also have the, the the big plastics issue that we want to cover, which has been covered multiple times in the news uh, over the last few months, uh, on varying degrees about uh, single use in the in the UK. And then this in the last month, the realization that uh, all that plastic that we were shipping to China, which they banned two years ago, I think, from the world shipping their junk to them. Uh, Malaysia was getting it, so now Malaysia's full, and they don't want our rubbish. So uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting six hundred and sixty uh, million tons. Of I think plastic. Was of 660,000 tons of tons of plastic was being sent to China each year from our recycling bins and such. I, I heard I was speaking to someone the other day about um, we were talking about the DRC where we're going and uh, the situation in the east and the, the countries that border it. And uh, they were saying that they'd flown into Rwanda um, last year. And you're not allowed off the plane if you've got plastic on you. No single-use plastic is allowed. You have to leave it on the plane. And they bin it. Yeah, wow. hardcore. Well, there we have it. I mean, th- things are getting a lot better, I would say, in terms of the UK uh, with single-use. I mean, if you go to, I think Co-op now gives those biodegradable yeah, yeah, bags. Do. I don't actually know how biodegradable they are. Um, I need to do, do a test. Maybe I just need to bury one. I um, I put one in my compost heap just before I left. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, we, there we go. Yep. Yeah, we put them in the compost heap. Well, there you have it. Well, we've taken a, a, enough of your, your time. Uh, join us again in potentially a week's time, but if not, definitely two weeks' time 